This episode is supported by the Felmer's Cheney Advocacy Board, or FCAB. FCAB is an advocacy board comprised of private citizens guided by a shared concern for social justice, corrections policy, and the successful re-entry of former inmates as they return to their communities. The 411 Live. Where you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your girl. Is the criminal justice system fair? Are there disparities? More than any other group, young black male defendants are more likely to be sentenced to incarceration in jail than probation. Is that evidence? What if I were to tell you that Young black males are also more likely to get a shorter jail sentence than any other group. Does that change your perception? Hello, everyone. This is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. I'm Beverly Taylor. Joining me to talk about all of this is Tina Freiberger. She is the dean of the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Tina, welcome. Thank you. Okay. So, um... I should also mention that you co-authored an article, The Joint Effects of Race, Ethnicity, Gender, and Age on the Incarceration and Sentence Length Decisions. That's a mouthful, but very good, good article. And we'll be talking about this. But I'm just wondering, sentencing research, what made you go in that direction? Yeah, well, um, I became interested really in graduate school uh, on just how punishment decisions are made, you know, because we all learn about how our system is supposed to operate uh, and the objectives of the system that, you know, we're supposed to be, punishment decisions are supposed to be based on, uh, you know, the severity of the fence, the need to protect the public. Uh, However, if there are other factors that are influencing those decisions uh, that shouldn't be like an individual's race, gender, their age, Um, then those things, we really want to uncover those because we, in order for us to change them and to do do something about them, we first have to identify them and know that they actually exist. Um, So I just became interested in looking at these decisions because they do have profound impacts on people's lives and to see, you know, are these decisions being made the way that we want them to be made? Tell me about the impact of living near Huntsville, Texas. Yes. So when I was in graduate school, I received my master's degree from Sam Houston State University. uh, And Sam Houston is actually the College of Criminal Justice and Criminology is right across from the Walls Unit, which is the prison in Texas that does all the executions. So I am from Wisconsin, so we've never had executions. So it was very different for me. And it was just a real shock, you know, because you know things, you know, you know states do have executions and you do hear the frequency at which they occur, uh, but to actually be there and to see, because every time there's an execution, there'd be protesters and so forth, uh, and it'd be in the news, and so it was very apparent that an execution was happening. Um, so, you know, I mean, not to downplay incarceration, incarceration has a huge impact on individuals, but, um, you know, just seeing people being put to death, it just really made me think about, you know, how are how are these decisions made? And are they really being made uh, in the best interest of our communities and in accordance to the intentions and uh, the goals of the system? And that, again, led me to just question, 
are there other impact, are there other factors that are at play here that should be looked at? Oh, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you did the research and you're doing the research. Let me break down this article a little bit. Um, Again, it examines the impact of race, ethnicity, gender, and age on judges' decisions to sentence defendants to probation, jail, or prison in Milwaukee County, I should add. Right. Now, who is most likely to be incarcerated or given probation based on race? Yeah, so the um, the research that I did uh, examined whether, um, you know, looked at the decision to punish as uh, a decision between incarceration and not incarceration, and if the decision was to incarcerate, whether just the decision was between jail and prison. Um, so looking at the first part of that, the decision to put somebody on probation or give someone a community sanction versus a jail sanction, uh, what I found was that uh, for women were less likely to receive jail, they were more likely to receive probation, which is pretty common across sentencing literature. And also, unfortunately, pretty common is that Black men were more likely to receive jail than any other group. So, uh, and if Black men were young, they were even more likely to receive jail over probation. And this is with all things equal, you know, the, the severity of the fence, the prior record of the individual. Uh, so, as age was a mitigating factor for all other groups, it was an aggravating factor for young black men. Uh, So they were more likely to get jail where other groups, uh, white males, Hispanic males, white females, uh, black females, they were all less likely to receive jail if they were young. You mentioned this earlier, kind of the the thought process for judges, the things that they should be considering when they're rendering their sentence. And I uh, went through your research and I saw the three basic things. And one was blameworthiness. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So blameworthiness just it basically is what it sounds like. It is how responsible the f- person is for the crime that they committed. So that can be influenced by things like the severity of the offense um, and also like what role they had in the offense. So whether it was a more secondary role versus more of a primary role. Um, so that's the kind of things that are considered in, in that um, measure. And the other one was community protection, which is kind of self-explanatory, but I'll let you elaborate on that. Right. So community or community protection is just, you know, who is, is considered to be more dangerous. So obviously individuals who commit more serious crimes are considered to be more risk to the public than those who commit more minor, minor offenses. Violent offenders are usually considered to be uh, greater risk to public safety. Uh, so all of those things and prior record, obviously. So somebody has a more lengthy prior record, uh, then that's usually an indicator that they're more likely to recidivate. And the third one was practical constraints. Yeah, so practical constraints can consider two things. One, it can be organizational constraints. So just, you know, how much space is there at the jail, for instance. Um, And it can also include more individual factors, like what kind of responsibilities does the person who's being sentenced have? So do they have, for instance, like childcare responsibilities? Are they employed? Uh, How much of an impact will their incarceration have on the individual being sentenced and also the community? Okay, so you have these three, three concerns, and the judge is ready to sentence the person. Do judges have time to look at all of these concerns with every defendant? 
Unfortunately not. And that's where this other concept of the perceptual shorthand comes into play. Uh, so contrary to what we see on TV, where everyone has these lengthy trials and, you know, the judge is listening to all the evidence and listening to everything, most sentencing decisions are made pretty quickly uh, in, in reality, in a real courtroom. And so judges don't have a lot of information in a lot of cases. So they have to kind of make a decision quickly based on the limited time and information that they actually have. And that's when things like gender, race, and age come into play because these things just unconsciously through kind of stereotypes that every individual holds um, lead to conclusions about blameworthiness and protection of the community and practical constraints that are not based on the factors that we want them to be based on, such as severity of offense and prior record, but instead these other kind of um, these demographic factors come into play through these stereotypes, and then it can lead to unconscious bias. So uh, when you have, for instance, like a young Black man uh, who is more often associated with like an offender from, you know, media and TV and so forth, then that can give off kind of this idea or this, you know, stereotype that that person is more dangerous and a greater threat to our community and more blameworthy. And also their incarceration is not as great of a burden for our society to carry. Uh, so it's kind of through these unconscious biases that these things then come into play. That's right. Because I was thinking about, you know, um, you know, throughout our history and our time, young Black men, just looking at them, even when they, you go to, to the level of being arrested, the officers, young Black man, danger. Mm -hmm. you know, there are things that pop in their minds unconsciously or consciously, I don't know, but, you know, danger. And it's like it, there's something like, like I, it makes me think of the A written with the Hawthorne novel, the A yeah. on the yeah. person. It's like something's written on their chest. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, and you know, there's been a lot of studies that have been done in psychology and so forth that find that these are real, these are very real things, even though we don't want to think about ourselves as being biased because a lot of times they are unconscious and we don't we we don't want to be part of that. You know, we don't want to think that we're subject to that. But in reality, everyone is. And that's too why I'm so passionate about this research, because it's this kind of research, um, it's by looking at the data and seeing what's going on that we can recognize, okay, this is having an impact. So when individuals and judges are making these decisions and prosecutors are making these decisions, they can say, I know this bias is there. I'm going to recognize it and I'm going to then make sure that I'm not, you know, I'm, I, my decisions are not being influenced by it. Right. Okay. Here's another one when we talk about perception. In your article, you say almost 80% of defendants who received probation were released prior to, or um, who received probation were released prior to incarceration, while only about 11% of those receiving jail were released and 12% of those receiving prison. Now, this means to me that people who are out on bail before the sentencing are more likely to get probation versus the people who are stuck in jail and, and they, they're sitting there because they can't make bail. So right. this is like a discrimination of the poor. I can't make bail, so I sit here. And I was uh, 
news reporter for many years, and I did a lot of sentencing and trials. So then you have the the trial comes. You have the defendant who comes in with the orange jail garb on, who is handcuffed, who is a lot of times shackled, brought into the courtroom. Now, a lot of times the jurors don't see that entry, but that's that's what how they look. But right. if they're out on bail and then they're coming to court, they're coming in, a lot of them have suit tie, suit and tie, woman a dress, nicely dressed, very mm-hmm. nicely groomed. That's got to have an uh, make an impression on the jurors, the judge, but it happens all the time. So that's why I say it's discrimination against the poor, because if you're poor and you can't make bail, then you're not out. And it's a snowballing effect. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And, you know, this is one of this is the big uh, this is the big thing that people are the reason why people are advocating nationally for the elimination of cash bail, uh, because, you know, it really has most a lot to do with what your financial resources are, what the financial resources of your family are. And it does have a very, very large impact on punishment decisions. And this is not something I've done um, this type of research in, in a lot of different places in Pennsylvania, uh, in Michigan, and consistently we find this exact same thing, that if an individual is able to make bail or receive an RRR and be released prior to sentencing, they're much less likely to serve time uh, incarcerated. And they're also much less likely, or they, they usually, if they, if they are incarcerated, they typically receive shorter sentences. Um, and, you know, it does, it, it makes complete sense when we're thinking about perceptions of blameworthiness and uh, protection of the community and practical constraints. Practical constraints are pretty much eliminated because the person is already incarcerated. And so it's just extending that incarceration. And then who looks more blameworthy and dangerous, the person who is shackled in the jumpsuit or someone who walks in with their family uh, in street clothes or in dress clothes. So that absolutely has a big impact. It also has a big impact on the plea bargain that individuals willing to accept. Uh, because I think any of us can put ourselves in the shoes of an individual who is being incarcerated and holding out for a better plea bargain. You know, you have to sit in jail that entire time until that plea bargain is reached, where if, if somebody's out in the community and they're working and they're around their families, then it's much easier for that individual to kind of hold out for a better deal than it is if somebody's incarcerated. Because I think, as I said, if you put yourself in their shoes, most of us would just want to get out as soon as we could. Right. So instead of waiting for the DA to offer us probation, we may say, you know what, I'll just take the 30 days because then I at least know I'll be out in 30 days. Absolutely. So um, it, it has a huge impact, absolutely. And then too, a lot of times with sentences, uh, you know, they will be given credit for the time served. So it may be, you know, that you receive 90 days, but you only have to serve an additional month or something like that. Um, so those deals definitely more, look more attractive to individuals who are trying to get out uh, versus people who are already are in the community currently. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about that plea bargain part of it. But also going back to just being out um, prior to sentencing, you know, if you're out, when you go to sentencing, you, you have the ability to say, well, you know, this is, a, this is a, the, for the lawyer to say, this is a good person because since the trial and 
from the trial to the sentence, he's had a great job. He's taking care of his family. He's done this, 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 all these wonderful things. But that person who could not make bail, um, they can't say that because they're stuck inside. So they can't, you know, you can't give those positive things for them because they never had the opportunity. Right, right. And yeah, or at least much more limited opportunity. And I mean, any defense attorney is going to tell their client when they're waiting for sentencing, go back and get your GED, start GED classes, go into treatment if there's a substance abuse issue, you know, be working, have a job, because all of those things are absolutely going to matter because they're all things that the judge considers and they also impact risk level. So whether somebody's more likely to reoffend or not, because someone who is community engaged and working full time is less li- much less likely to reoffend than somebody who doesn't have those things. Right, right. Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be back. We will talk about, uh, let's go back to the plea bargaining again, because I have a few more questions to ask about that. Stay with us. I'm talking to uh, Tina Freiberger. We're talking about pr- prison, sentencing, jail, probation, all those things, disparities. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I know what you're thinking. I need a job. I need a new career. Well, I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. I wasn't happy with what I was doing. After high school, I didn't have a plan. I just wanted to start working. I got laid off twice. But you got to keep going. You just need the right skills. Find an apprenticeship. I found a two-year IT program. I found a medical course online. I'm now a consultant in the tech space. You have more options than you think. You can do this. You will find something. You will find something new. Show some respect. Show you give a damn. Show the world how it's done. Show them that when your community needed you the most, you showed up. Mask up, America. Welcome back to the 411 Live, talking with Tina Freiberger. And when we left, we were talking about plea bargains. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. When you think about the folks who are, um, they have a crime, you know, they're convicted or before the conviction, they are um, accused. There is the plea bargain kind of thing because they, they're stuck in jail. They can't make bail. They're frightened. They have obligations, whatever, whatever. And then they take a plea bargain. You told me a story once about, um, you know, some incident, a bunch of people are arrested, put in jail, and then maybe one or two, they didn't do it, but they took the plea bargain because it's like, I want to get out. Right. But then afterwards, the case, there was no case, really. The incident fell through or whatever, but they'd already taken the plea bargain, so they can't get out of that. Is that right? That is correct. So once they have a conviction, that conviction is going to stand unless 
you know, there's a pardon or something um, really extreme and very rare like that. So yeah, there actually have been cases where uh, there's been individuals arrested. And I know, you know, like Frontline did a really interesting piece on a story where um, a large number of people were arrested from a housing complex. And um, some of the individuals who were not able to make bail took plea bargains to be able to get out. Because again, you know, if we put ourselves in those individual shoes, you know, we're concerned about losing our job. We're concerned about, you know, who's going to be taking care of our children, what's happening with our children. Um, so they took plea bargains to get out. And then later on, it was discovered that um, the arrest was made on bad information. So there wasn't actually any drug activity. There was no illegal activity. So all the charges were dropped. But for the individuals who pled guilty, even though at that point that they know there was no actual offenses committed, those convictions held. And that does happen. That does occur in the system. And um, it's not, you know, just one case that was out there and picked up because it was sensational. It does occur. People plead guilty, um, are more likely to plead guilty for an offense if they have to sit in jail, if they're not able to be out and being able to advocate on their on their behalf. And again, you know, individuals want to get get home and they want to get back to the things, their responsibilities that they have. Uh, so, you know, we think about all these ideal situations and we think about media and, you know, fictional stories and, you know, even true stories where they are, you know, highlighted, where people hold out because they're not guilty. And we want to believe that, well, if somebody's not guilty, they'll never say that they did something. Right. But we actually know that happens all the time. And it happens for very good reason. And like I said, if we take a minute, put ourselves in those individual shoes, you can see um, how those decisions are made or why those decisions are made. Yeah. It seems the criminal justice system is skewed, skewed in a way that puts a poor person at a disadvantage. It does, absolutely. Not only... Um, so, you know, not, not only with wealth, but also with education. education. And, you know, I, it's really surprising how little people really know about their rights. You know, it's very shocking how um, little people know about the power that they actually have. And for a lot of people, what they know is from what they've seen on TV. And I personally think that we should make more of an effort to educate people on what their rights are, uh, because it's it's important. And no, and you know, you don't know when you're going to be. Nobody knows when they could be in a situation where um, those things are going to be highly beneficial to them. To know, you know, what rights they have, and to know, you know, what they can say no to. Right. You know, it's a, it's a balancing act because when somebody does a terrible crime, you want them to go through the criminal justice system and of you course. want them to be put away. But of it's course. it's you, so take care of those people, but you also want the system to be fair. Right, right, absolutely. And you know, even if we're thinking of people who really did do something terrible, I mean, is it fair if one person fares better in the end because they had? more knowledge than someone else who did the exact same thing. You know, again, we want to think of our system as equal and as fair and as blind to these types of things. So all of that stuff becomes blurred, you know, when, when these things are, when there's these kind of disparities against our population. Okay. Let's talk about another thing that was in the, the report and that being, uh, and I, this surprised me, Young black males receive shorter jail sentences. But when I read more of the, the uh, 
article, then it all made sense. So why is it? So we already said young black males are more likely to be incarcerated in jail than any other group. And now we're saying young black males are more likely to get uh, a shorter sentence. Weigh that out for me. Right. Well, um, it's most likely because black men are being sentenced for lower level offenses. So when you think about like when we're looking at the decision between probation and jail, young black men are receiving jail, whereas other individuals who committed the same offense are receiving probation. So that leads us to black men, young black men being sentenced to jail for more minor offenses, thereby they're receiving shorter sentences. So it's really that's skewing the the results because we have offenses for which black men are going to jail, but nobody else is going to jail for it. They're going to probation. They're getting probation for it or some kind of community sanction for it. Right. And while you might say, well, they're getting a short sentence, so that's good. But when you go to jail for a day, there are repercussions for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, I really reject that argument. And that is actually something that's made, um, in the, uh, scholarly, pool too in the scholar area that some scholars say that, well, you know, these like race and these, uh, the, these variables, they don't have nearly as large of an effect as, you know, the severity of the offense, the prior record. Uh, but I really disregard that because if somebody is spending a minute incarcerated or receiving at all a more serious punishment because of their race or their age, then that's just a complete dereliction of our society, of our of our system because that is not what our system is supposed to be doing, um, and it's to me it's totally unfair and it's completely unacceptable. Right, because when you think about the impact, you have a record, you may have a tough time getting a job because of that. Absolutely, you know, family situation. You know, if you don't have a job you know, there's no income coming in or, you know, what happens to the children? Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many people who are affected by that. Absolutely. And then there's also a stigma that is associated with that too, because then you've served, the person has served time in jail. So even if it is a short time period, you know, they, they lose their job, they have to try to find a new job and they have to go out on the job market trying to find a new job with, I was just incarcerated, you know? And so it does, it, it does have an impact. Absolutely. One of your findings, and I think I read this where a black female is the uh, most likely to get probation versus jail or prison. Yeah. And actually um, a colleague and I did a study in Michigan and we found the exact same thing. Um, we, because of restrictions with the data that was available, we couldn't really identify why that was. Uh, however, I was, I did do some research in Pennsylvania um, that did have just kind of more data available on various impacts or various factors. And one of the things that I found was a big uh, decision making decision maker for judges was um, if somebody was, uh, caretaker of children, a sole caretaker of children. So they were responsible for caring for children without like another individual in the home who could take over those duties. Uh, then judges were much more likely to try to give that person probation if that was a reasonable sanction. So when the decision between a community sanction and jail, the judges tended to try to kind of give that person a chance by keeping them in, in the community because, and this relates back to the practical constraints, just with the social cost is so high for society to put somebody 
to incarcerate someone who, you know, is that 24-7 caretaker of children. Um, so that could be what's going on here. Um, and it could be operating to through one or, or two ways or through both possibly. Is that simply uh, Black women in Milwaukee County are just more likely to be in that situation? Or it could just also um, relate back to kind of the stereotypic ideal of, you know, Black women being more likely to be taking care of their children without a male partner. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Tina, if I could give you a magic wand and I said, okay, fix this, what would you do? I mean, you know, whenever there's a decision to be made, there's always going to be some level of human error. Uh, but, you know, that being said, this is really not a place where, where we can accept error. So, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing. I mean, I, I, um, if I would have a magical wand, I would probably consider maybe that we just need a different system entirely that isn't based on any kind of social factors, but um, that system would have to be part of a society where those things also didn't matter. Um, so we're pro probably will take a magic wand for us to get there in our lifetimes, but uh, that doesn't mean that we still can't move the needle. So, you know, we just need to continue to, you know, advocate for these things, to talk about these things, to recognize these things and, uh, you know, do everything that we can to correct these things when we discover them. Very good. And you will continue to do this with your research. So I thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you. Tina Freiberger is the Dean of the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Tina, I thank you. It has been a really good conversation and thank you for the research that brings a lot of the stuff to light. Thank you for, for having me. Sure thing. Sure thing. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the 411 Live. Remember, we are a nonprofit organization, so if you would like to help us out, please go to our website, the411live.org, and there you can donate. Thank you again for joining us, and if you would like to see other episodes, of course you can do that, and we invite you to do that. And please come back again for another episode of the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. I'm Beverly Taylor. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.